Hello. Welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure out of our mouths or to bask in the incredible taste of one Nicolas Cage. Welcome Ooh, back to the taste. cage. I am one of your co-hosts, Carlos Cooper, with me as always. Joe Hilliard. And Dave Gurney. And what a special night. What what a, what a milestone for us. What an uh, achievement. I was uh, talking to my therapist earlier today, and I said, <laughs> today I'm leaving to go record episode 200, and she went, wow. That's a lot. <laughs> She's like, what cage film? <laughs> right? Right? She's not seen any oh, of them, no. Oh, dang. I speak... 75% of the way that I communicate with other human beings is in pop culture references, and she hasn't seen any film ever. Oh. And so more often than not, I have to say what I... I speak the way I normally speak and then realize, oh, yes, you haven't seen this <laughs> film or this show, and then I have to re-articulate myself in, a, in another way. Um, but it's it's all good. I uh, have, I 200 have, episodes is a lot of episodes is what I'm saying. Yeah, I it have is. a running list of stats, beers, movies, all of it. But I want to get some beer in our glass. I want to get the celebration started immediately. Well, guys, I, I brought us a beer that I hope befits the occasion, um, even if it isn't the, the most uh, lovely tie-in with the film that we're going to be reviewing in the first half of the episode. Um, as, li- as long as it's high octane. It, it, it certainly is that, because this one clocks in Maybe at a little a wacky. 12.4%. <laughs> ABV. Um, it's it's from a favorite brewery of the show, Jester King, out of uh, Austin, Texas. Yeah, we've had them in the double digits at this point. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. No, they they are uh, Hall of Famers on no beer doubt. and a movie. No so it's it's befitting an episode like this, an auspicious one like our two hundredth. Back to the cage, the cage match again, um, to get us well prepared for the cage. I think um, something at 12.4% that is a maple bourbon barrel aged imperial stout refermented with blackberries and aged in those maple bourbon barrels. I think that's going to do it for us. I hope it's going to do it for us. If that won't, what will? I don't know. If this doesn't soothe us as a nocturne serenade should, that's the name of the beer here, um, maybe we can go with some of Holly Hunter's serenading of the uh, young baby in the movie that we're going to be whoa, talking whoa, about. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, I, I, did, I, did, I, did I just the jump the gun? Oh, man. Smart viewers, smart listeners already know what we're going to do. But I'm going to crack this open and get some beer in our glasses before we get any further into the film discussion. I was not paying attention to anything you said, David. Is this <laughs> going to be one of their farmhouses, or is this like the last time we had Jester King, just a couple of episodes ago, with that Doom Forge? Uh, is them going into non-farmhouse brewing? That is a great question, Joe. Honestly, I this is my first time having it. I believe it was their first time brewing it just a few months ago. So, I don't know. Based on the nose alone, I'm going to say I don't think it's farmhouse. But I'll find out when I taste it. All right, Carlos, I'll lift you a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I know that I have to give myself the pour that I want. Because if I think I'm coming back for seconds, especially with a Jester King, typically that's not in the cards. It gets consumed. So in 199 episodes, right, as of last week's episode, we have reviewed 451 beers from 270 breweries, all 50 states. We knocked that out last, yeah, last year. Uh, but 15 countries. The average ABV of every beer that we've ever enjoyed on this show, 
remains rock steady at 8.3%. And we have reviewed 424 movies prior to this time that we're in the room together. That's that's good. That's a lot of work. It's, it's a mountain of accomplishment. That's We've done right. a lot. We've it, done a lot. And, and if you consider 200 episodes, two beers, two movies, you'd think those numbers would be around 400. But clearly there have been several episodes where we cracked more than two. Yeah, and reviewed more than two films. Um, and and just to kind of give a precursor, because I know we're about to get into the synopsinization of, uh, <laughs> of the film. That we're this, this is why we've been broadcasting, as, <laughs> podcasting as long as we have. Uh but everyone knows that in 2022, Beer in a Movie has seen a meteoric rise in listenership. Oh, without a doubt. And uh, so if you're not familiar with what is about to take place every 50 episodes, bare minimum, we discuss Nicolas Cage films. Yeah, we hit right. we, We've snuck a couple in in between sure. these. He does sneak yeah. in from time to time, but the, every 50 episodes, there is a Nick Cage, ex- like, it's exclusively Cage content. Mm-hmm. And it's called Cage Match. And think of that filmography. I mean, I, we can do this forever. We could. Yeah. And in fact, the idea for this was born out of a podcast idea that I had. Right. A separate of beer in a movie called Cage Match, where I invite a Nicolas Cage skeptic on and watch <laughs> every movie in his filmography from start to finish and try to convince the world that he is the greatest actor of our generation. So they're playing my hand right off the bat that I love Nicolas Cage. And we decided... Probably just better to incorporate that into beer in a movie. Yeah, I think it was the right move rather um, than try to do a whole other podcast. Because you'd be There's too many podcasts. You'd be two hundred episodes in on that one and just still <laughs> scratching the surface. Scratching the surface, <laughs> yeah. right? I Absolutely. know he's busy at work right now on Nick Cage, good or bad. Renfield, yeah, a new Dr- yeah. Dracula movie, yeah. playing Dracula or a vampire. I, I'm assuming with Renfield, they're staying close to that source Bram Stoker material. And if that comes out between now and our 250th episode, I am assuming that we'll be there for that. But since our 150, I know we've done Pig, and I know we've done The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent mm-hmm. as standalone new release Cage films. Yeah. Was, was Willie, Willie's Wonderland was before our last Cage match. Mm, I'm not sure if I it think was. it was before. Did we do that for All Horror October? I can go back and look. Well yeah. I don't know. That might have even been in there in yeah, the mix. I don't know. But you been. guys let me kind of lead the discussion on which two Cage films to do this week. I, I was surprised. Well, here's the thing. It was not a robust conversation. I threw two out there and y'all both said, let's do those. Yeah, it's a great idea. Well, the one that we're about to get into is one that every time we have this conversation of what Nicolas Cage films should we tackle, yeah. the very first one you throw out is this one. And in fact, I believe that episode 150, the way that we handled that was each of us put a Nicolas Cage film in a hat. And so two of the three were chosen and yours was not in this case. Yeah. Well, we're finally doing it. And so we're it. getting to it now. Yeah. We, and, but we have never discussed Blood Simple on, on Beer in a Movie. True. No. But we did just recently do Crime Wave. Which was <laughs> which must be discussed. Directed by Sam Raimi mm-hmm. after Evil Dead, the success of Evil right. Dead, and co-written oh, God. by well, the Coen brothers yeah. yes. after yes. their They've, success, their original film success of Blood Simple. I think right. it was them and Sam Raimi's brother. That okay, wrote it. yeah. So mm-hmm. now we're following it up with the Coens, the Coen team's second film, their sophomore film as a, as the filmmakers. Uh, following Blood Simple, right. uh, Raising Arizona. Very different film. 
And I'm just going to say at the very beginning, this is my favorite Nicolas Cage performance. I mean, before Ooh. we even jump in, this is my and very that, that's, favorite Nicolas Cage performance. You were a pig. Uh, wasn't he your favorite performance last year? Yeah, a pig. Uh, best actor? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I think you gave it your... I don't think you put it as your number one film. It was in my top five, certainly. It was right, but five. I think you gave him... One. Best performance. I think he gave him best okay. performance. Okay, well, I mean... So this is even above that, yeah, which you've yeah, said yeah. is a yeah, year-defining performance. Well, uh, well, difficult to compare, though. Yeah, definitely. Two different modes. Sure, sure. and it's sure. difficult to compare to Blood Simple. I mean, we never talked oh, about yeah. it on the show, but very noir, very uh, very stripped down. The Coen brothers here went for, like, Looney Tunes, live-action Looney Tunes. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll give a quick synopsis. If you haven't seen it, please jump on it as quickly as you can. Nicolas Cage plays recidivist hold-up <laughs> man H.I. McDonough, who wears the pants around here high, <laughs> and police woman uh, Edwina is played by Holly Ed. Hunter. She's the intake uh, at the police station. She'll take yeah. your photo turn to the right she'll uh take your fingerprints but they fall in love get married only to discover that they are unable to conceive a child because i'm barren and uh desperate for a baby they decide to kidnap one of the quintuplets of furniture tycoon nathan arizona who we meet on a television commercial yeah Mm -hmm. uh his wife's begun taking fertility drugs they have five too much to handle edwina and high convince themselves so they go in and steal one of the babies they try to keep their crime their crime a secret but friends co-workers and a feral bounty hunter all and and two escaped convicts (laughs) that serve time with high in the joint right played by john goodman and william forsyth thank you all are in pursuit of this baby the bounty the the bounty that's being offered for the bounty the reward that's being offered if you return the baby and then falling in love with the baby one and raising themselves and it all comes to a crashing climactic conclusion it's raising arizona as i say like looney tunes on film mm-hmm. in, a, in a certain way we approach this talking about the film like yeah. we normally would and then certainly spending some time on Nicolas cage's performance and i've already thrown my cards on the table when it comes to that mm-hmm. but i love this movie for so many reasons as a historian or historical context it is such a departure from the coen brothers first film that they really are trying to show i guess hollywood or or the arts community that consumes films we are here to do all kinds of different things uh this one is you know straight up slapstick comedy and i i laughed and laughed and laughed seeing it this time maybe for the 15th time Mm -hmm. there's notes of like what's to come in it though like Holly Hunter serenading the baby tie-in to the beer that we're drinking mm-hmm. reminded me of the sirens from Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Sure. Because she's yeah. singing like a kind of old-timey like mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. And there are like Folk little... Tune. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, there are like hints and elements in this film that you will see the Coens revisit over the course of their career. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think that not I think, I wonder if this was more of them trying to prove something to somebody or them just being like kind of wacky and like creative and yeah. like bored and like we did that. Why would we do it again? Like we have so much more like rather than like a we want to show that we can do comedy too. just being like, a, oh, well, we did that serious movie already. It would be boring to do another one. Let's try something else. And let's now, not you let's know? not pigeonhole ourselves into some kind of gritty crime noir I just I by doing that again I hear what you're saying I just 
they revisit those themes several well, times in their so, career. And so that's why based on the trajectory of their career and like hindsight being 2020, it's hard for me to imagine them having the foresight to think about it that way or being that intentional. Well, you know the, what I mean? Yeah, it seems, the bit of research I did was that they intended on doing Hudsucker Proxy next, but did expensive. not have the budget to do so. So this was a, a lower budget one, ability for them, you know, understand. For them to do. It. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I think this is these guys from the beginning that what got them into filmmaking. They love movies. They love like old Hollywood films. Clearly, as evidenced by Hail Caesar. Yeah, they love screwball comedies. Mm -hmm. That's one mode that they love dipping into. They love film noirs, detective films, um, crime films. That's the other mode that they. And if you look at their career, you can kind of see that toggling back and forth constantly between the juicy over the top screwball comedies to the more and occasionally blending the two i think there's almost always comedy in their noir and then there's there's almost always a little bit of darkness in their comedies but like probably big lebowski a couple other that truly hit more of a blend i think in certain ways this one is one that tilts way further to the screwball comedy end of things well i feel like crime wave showed them you can't have both of these things in equal measure because it doesn't work. Well, and, and then from there maybe, on out, they, maybe that. Yeah, from there you, on out, they're like, okay, we like both of these things. We can, we can, yes, have them both in the same film, but we really have to like lean on one more than the other for it to work right. because the equal parts of each is tonally. A mess, yeah, and it's confusing jarring. to it's an jarring. audience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like Crime Wave. It was funny watching that a few weeks back with you guys and talking about it and how disappointing it was and everything. Their best movie. <laughs> but that even though I had never seen it before, when I saw it, it felt very familiar in part because of what I knew of what they did with Raising Arizona and Hudsucker Proxy and Hail Caesar and some of these other like more on you know just on the money kind of screwball comedies that they did where yes they bring in some dark elements but in a more measured way whereas you're right crime wave part of its sin is that it's trying too much to to blend the two like the extreme violence with the and having there be some kind of repercussions but not really um yeah it was episode 194 yeah and you know but that was also Raimi involved too. So they, mm-hmm. they couldn't really pull the strings as much with, you know, once the thing was written. Anyhow, here is the brothers, total creative control. Sure. Their script. Putting down on film what they wanted exactly, um, working with one of the most volatile actors of his or any other generation. And it is funny, you know. Who was per- volatile on this set, correct? That which is what I've heard. Uh, yeah. the, their, their working relationship, I mean, obviously it yielded some gold. Yeah. They all, they're, I think they're all happy now with what came out of it. Yeah. But the process of it, I think Cage being the kind of performer he is, all accounts are he wanted to improvise. He wanted to do things that were not necessarily storyboarded. The, bro- the Coen brothers are not that those kind of filmmakers. That's very this, meticulous. Yeah. I mean, that is the budding up of two really different kind of styles because mm-hmm. everything I've read about the Coen brothers is they go in with the vision knowing exactly what they're looking Precision for. Precision filmmakers. Right, right. Well, right. you just, I mean, and you look at it, you can't put together films that look like this if you're just Winging setting it. up yeah. and letting the, you know, kind of on the spot blocking the scene, you know, very quickly. Like, no, you need to make some calculated decisions about where you're going to place that camera to get the angle that 
that you want to have everything kind of I mean they're notorious for the wide angle lenses for those low angle shots that yeah. like they just do things that distort images make them more cartoon like in certain ways it lends to that looney tunes feel of the thing there's one scene in particular that uh struck me as far as like how calculated they are mm. um it's when um high's boss francis mcdormand by the way just really going for it oh yeah this one loved her S- such a blip of a of a role <laughs> yeah. in the you know but but yeah. but gold for those talk about it she was yeah. of course starring in blood simple talk about her departure Again, yeah I mean, yeah. different uh, polar opposite performance here so her husband was his name glenn glenn, glenn. glenn okay yep. so glenn comes back after getting knocked out <laughs> tells hi he knows where the baby came from right. and is saying like, we want that baby. <laughs> like, right. Right. Dot Not I'm going to turn you in, but the, the others, I'll turn the you others in are unless too you big. give it to us. Give the me other, that baby. The, yeah, the others are too big to cuddle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's there's this moment, right? And he's as, got a problem with his semen. Yeah. <laughs> well, they write fart on the wall. I mean, that... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Carlos. It's, it's fine. There's a lot going on with that character in the short time that he's there. Yeah. Uh, also a nightmare, by the way. Like, mm. the, his, the behavior of his children stressed me out to oh, yeah. no end. Anyway, uh, but as he's driving off, we see High, and then there's a there's an insert shot that comes in of John Goodman, uh, Gale, looking through. He's got the blinds open, and then yeah. we don't really see him in there, but we see, like, someone opening them, and then we see him shut, and then it cuts back to high yeah. and then he goes inside and they've heard and then yeah. they're going to use it for yeah. their own gains but just that insert shot and how like kind of unnatural it is and like how quick and like specific and like look at this thing like i'm telling you a thing visually you know whatever um it's not like we really see high look over and then it, it i don't know the way it's cut isn't like a natural progression of high's eyeline right in a way that other filmmakers would do it it's this very storyboarded moment and but it works so fucking well even though it's not that natural kind of falling of an island Mm -hmm. it's still it's very economic transmission of information it is it works really well it doesn't feel weird even though if you really think about it intellectually it kind of is and that that to me that no i'm fine uh that moment is this really short distillation of the way that they function i'd love to focus on the intro uh the part the, the, did the, not like this. The econo- you didn't like that. It's way too. The cold opens way too long. Oh it's no, ten no, no. minutes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really long. This is setting up everything. Setting up and a ton of voiceover and a, a, a ton, ton of voiceover of by voiceover. High. Uh, two visits, two, three visits to prison where he sees the same characters over and over again. Right. The, the the psychiatrists kind of group setting that they have yeah. where the guy sometimes i've got menstrual cramps real hard it's it's a hilarious line yeah. delivered hilariously just to put a joke in uh-huh. uh to show that this world that you're about to go into is offbeat it's odd and and the writing here the other okay so let me not get off target. And set up the character without having you sit there for 45 minutes watching the story it of this down and out. It sets up the character. It sets up the tone real well. Yeah. And then, well, the, the the rapidity of it makes sense, yeah. too. The pacing of the film gets there. And then throughout overall. it, you've got that score going, the now, 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 now. And then they're going to steal the baby. And then they're off into the sunset to steal the baby. And here comes the title raising Arizona mm-hmm. with, you know, yeah. um, it, 
I I could watch that over and over and over again, Carlos. I'm, it, it bothers me that you didn't like it, but to me, it's setting up. What was it? Uh, Drive my car, where the opening the credits are forty five minutes in. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I'm I'm reminded of that to a degree. Completely different tone. Completely different everything. <laughs> and then I just wanted to kind of move into before I know we're going to talk about Nicolas Cage's performance in this thing. It's the script is the star of this movie. The script is so tight and this weird. I don't know if it's tight. It's it, I'm talking about every word in place and every and characters delivering the types of lines that doesn't make sense for them to deliver, but because they're delivering them very, very comedically and well, it, it really, really works. I'm thinking largely of John Goodman and his brother. Uh, they're very good. They're, they're the words that they're given to say are so wise while they're so buffoonish. Mm-hmm. And then they continue to act buffoonish as they leave the baby, not once, but twice, behind. <laughs> They're, they have a lot of great moments. When they escape from jail, yeah. amazing. Yeah. When they're... Overuse of pomade when they are oh, preparing their hair. Disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a daily user of pomade, grossed me out. You don't put four <laughs> fingers in and get a half of a cup no. to put on one side of your hair? I, I'm a Dapper Dan man, and you don't need that much. <laughs> uh, unfortunately... Dan is not a real thing. I looked it up. Yeah, right, right. But, but you're staying in the Cohen uh, universe. No, in the Cohen so universe. that's good. Uh, yeah, when they come out, and then there's a scene where they're driving in the car when they realize that they've left the baby yeah. at the convenience store that they robbed. And the whole way, they're screaming. screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny. Yeah. It's so good. And like, that's the second all screaming and, and, and then scene. They, yeah, and then they like, uh, like fall in love with this baby. Like yeah. they're like, they get really like, we're never gonna let it go you know like yeah. that that turn for them from being like this is our cash cow to being like no this is our son gail jr you yeah. know whatever is really funny <laughs> like they are great in this movie well the yeah. other screaming scene is when he decides to stop off to pick up some huggies and then decides to go ahead and rob the store while his ex-police woman wife is not only in the car but hoping for the best that he's removed himself from this life of crime and then that sequence through the supermarket uh with the the guy who he who gives him a ride who's also doing nothing but screaming mm. uh the pantyhose on his head that he pops up real quick and it goes way up into the air i mean which we'll see again later it is just yeah you're right it is <laughs> just so so good mm-hmm. yeah i mean it it's this is the Coen Brothers, their first big screwball comedy, crazy over the top, uh, you know, set pieces. The, the the robbery scene you're talking about that becomes this extended chase Son, sequence. you with, got a panty on your hand. <laughs> all the these dogs. different factors, right, including a dog get, that gets no, ripped from No, a pack of dogs. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. a dog that rips its chain out of a yard to a to chase high and then ends up attracting an entire pack of them yeah. that's running down the road yapping and barking and, and then through so the supermarket so yeah. all right through the supermarket through all of it through people's homes I mean. oh yeah right those are some great and, and then that and then it ends and it's such a, a great moment of him picking the huggies up off the street yes, where he left them absolutely he didn't leave them they were shot out of well, his arms yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but where he dropped them i should say so i mean you, you have so many of those wonderful mo- and and there's you know the robbery the the uh, i'm sorry the kidnapping scene genius I mean just the way that that shot that's that's where the Looney Tunes-ness of this whole thing and that that scene is where I think 
the world is adequately established. Yeah. Because the proportions of that room are insane. Yeah. It is the most cartoonish, like the huge bright colors, yeah. the vastness of this space. Right. Like everything is big and bright and bold. And that's when you really see, and when the world of like, oh yeah, this is a cartoon that we're watching. Yeah. Is, like is solidified yeah. to me. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. That Sorry, that that is a that is a a standout scene for many reasons. So, you know, th- this is just this is a film that I came to know the Coen Brothers through without really knowing who the Coen Brothers were because I was seeing this when I was so young that I wasn't paying attention to who directed a film. Nicolas Cage meant nothing to me. Hard to believe, but there Impossible was a time. To believe. There was a time. Um, John Goodman hadn't. I mean, maybe I was watching Roseanne at this point, and I had a sense of Dan Connors. But <laughs> the whole this film occupies such a place in my mind, where like all of these people who I came to really love the work they've done at Holly Hunter that they've done love since Francis McDormand. This is like the sort of uh, you know the seminal moment for so much that I love in terms of film and TV and comedy from the 80s through the 90s right right up to today. So this is a classic film in every sense. I, I would not hesitate to invite anybody to watch this film. I've used it in classes before. It doesn't. It doesn't land as well with students as I want it to when necessarily. You say you use it in it didn't land as well with me as I think you would want it to. When oh. when you say you use it in classes, do you literally watch the movie? The the students in your class watch the movie as if they're at the movie theater first, and then you discuss it, or do they watch it on their own and they come to the class to discuss it? Done it both ways, yeah. but but yeah, done it both ways. And you're finding that the 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 youngins out there uh, don't land on this one the way that you hope. No, no, not. I mean, there's certainly plenty who like it, but but it doesn't resonate to the degree that I would want it That's to. It's interesting to me. Yeah, it didn't for me. Uh, I told David on Saturday that the, I've only seen this once before, and it was in 2010 at a Raiden movie theater mm-hmm. screening. Yeah, I was there. I believe you were. Mm-hmm. Um, I and it's not. I liked it. Don't get me wrong, I like this movie. And there are things about it that I like. I think there I think there is a, mo- a part of it where it kind of drags a little bit. It could be a little tighter if you're going for that fast-paced, screwball, Looney Tunes style. Where is thing. it dragged for you? I just... When he tells his dreams, it does slow down a bit. I guess a little bit, but I guess there's a... I guess it's the part where... Uh, in between them getting the baby and when nobody knows yet who the that it's the baby where they're just kind of like living they're just trying to live this idyllic life and I know the brothers show up during that time I was gonna say they show up pretty quickly and, 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 and stuff like that but I just feel like during that period of time the stakes are more so on whether high is going to revert back to a life of crime rather than whether people are going to find out about the baby thing. And that seems kind of obvious and not boring, but just kind of mundane to a certain degree. So like kind of Hmm. something you would expect. And so there, I don't know, there's just a moment where things haven't gotten crazy yet. Hmm. And that it could be, I don't know. I don't, I, I, like, I mean, look, 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 here's the, here's the thing is that, is that while 
some of the movie might have I, I just I can't say that there I would go in and be like oh you should change this this and this it's not that I think it should be a different movie or anything like that I think it is as fully realized as this particular film could possibly be and I do think Nick Cage is really going for it in this and I think Holly Hunter's fantastic and all the performances are great mm-hmm. I I just I I didn't I, I found myself more so going oh that's funny Rather than like laughing out loud, yeah, you know what I mean. Huh. Uh, and I guess because of that, because of the over-the-top performance and like tone of the film, and my kind of underplayed reaction to it, there's a disparity there that maybe hmm. made me not be like, "This is the fucking best." Well, Nick Cage performance you know, I, I I think the further we get from Looney Tunes and and the sort of classic era of screwball comedy the more it seems foreign and it doesn't read the same i mean that but might I did be grow part up of it on those though like, i grew up watching wiley e. coyote uh-huh which nick cage kind of is in this movie sure. to a certain degree uh and you know one other thing that's slightly unrelated is that you were saying that nick cage wasn't anyone to you yet john goodman wasn't anyone to you yet i don't I never lived in a world without either of those two people. <laughs> I grew up on Roseanne reruns on Nick at Night. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up watching Gone in 60 Seconds on like TNT right, at four right, in the right. afternoon yeah. or whatever. It's just like, I don't yeah, know, this it's really was, interesting. I mean, the Coen brothers, that's only their second film, but it's the yeah. first one that Goodman appears in, and he goes on to appear in many, and many, 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 many more. more yeah. For sure. But, uh, but I, I do understand what you're saying as far as the detachment from that style and brand of comedy. Yeah, I say that this is my favorite Nicolas Cage performance because I honestly believe he's given so much to do here. And really, where his strength is in this film is reaction shots. He is so comedically gifted in this film. Mm. The reaction to who wears the pants around here high. (laughs) You know, that's one example I could give you a dozen in this film where his reactions are so perfect his reactions to glenn while glenn is at their home and the yeah. kids are you know ransacking everything yeah. his Get your damn hands <laughs> right <laughs> right and you can tell that the cohen brothers i mean gave him i mean it's i think it's also important as we discuss cage in both of these films and anytime we do to put it in the context of where his career is because yeah. this is pre face off pre uh, national treasure. Oh yeah, you know, no, where he has not now, made his transition into action film star. Well, he's still relatively unknown. I had Moonstruck come out. I can't. I uh, cannot it was remember. right around this time, uh, right? So there was this right before, right after. Yeah, this is that phase where he's really, before. you know, as a leading man, still proving himself. And it takes him quite a while, even after this film, to prove himself. I don't think he really began. Like this is after Vampire's Kiss, right? Yes, that was eighty four. Yeah. So, but it's pre. So this was the, Moonstruck came out later the same year. Okay. The, oh, Raising Arizona was what May. A year this for was him. Right. December. Nineteen. And then uh, was December. a few years before the film, I think that kind of made him. This guy could really be a lead. Um, Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. That's ninety five. So that's like, this is way before. That. Sure. This He's just a working actor years, right now. Yeah. yeah and. And, and it, what a risky role. I mean, really. I mean, it, it, it was so comical, so farcical that, I mean, it really could have flopped. I think, And I think it was critically mixed when this film came out. Yeah, I think it, it's it really was, got yeah. its life you know, through kind of a cult notion. Yeah, and it, mm-hmm. it, it, it is interesting as well because 
you know, as he goes on and as he gets a little more praise for, you know, certain performances, for his approach to the craft, there is a little more, should I say, um, kindness or lenience with him making big crazy choices like yeah. like the opening scene of face off for instance where he's like in the church or he's like dressed as a priest and he's like doing crazy shit at that point people are kind of like it's nick cage he's gonna really go for it and he's gonna be over the top sometimes 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 gone in 60 seconds less over the top yeah right around, nothing yeah i say gone in six seconds because right around the same time um but yeah you're right pig very subdued um but what we can see in this performance, I feel like more than anything, because if we go back and look at Vampire's Kiss, that movie didn't do well, right. you know. So it's right. not. So it's kind of like it was discovered after the fact. Yeah, and because he's giving this like absolutely like insane manic performance yes. in a movie that didn't do well, it's hard to really like be like this is a guy that does these. You know, it's easy to write off, is what I should say. But because Raising Arizona was fairly successful i mean maybe critically mixed at the time but has gone on to have this huge life yeah i think it really speaks to like what he does as an actor that at this time in his career when he's not yet a sure thing when he's not such an established presence that he knows he's going to be able to work for the rest of his life he's still fairly young and he's still doing what he does in this movie to a degree of success is impressive, I think. Well, this and movie is pretty wild. This movie almost tricks you into thinking that you're watching that category of Cage, like Vampire's Kiss, like um, what are some other titles where he's going balls out? Ports of Call, New Orleans. Yeah, I mean, Face Off, yeah. I think, is a big one. Yeah. It tricks you into thinking that that's what he's doing here, but that's not, I don't think, what he's doing here. I think what he's doing here is what the directors have told all of their actors to do, because Holly Hunter does it to a degree. I mean, they're playing this hyper. I would say hyper realistic, but that's not even accurate. It's it no. they're an over the top cartoonish version of humanity. Yeah, and he does it. He nails kind of it for the directors in this movie. Yeah, like caricature esque. There's little touches too when he he's fighting John Goodman in the trailer, and he reaches up to come down and hit him. But when he does, he scrapes his fingers on the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. and that, well, that, that whole sequence is brilliantly directed. Oh, I mean, yeah. some of the camera angles of yeah. like when it's just on his feet as he's like being twirled around mm-hmm. and stuff is like perfect but that insert you talk about the insert shot of his fingers scraping on that ceiling yeah. and, it, and the sound effect that they throw in there for it you yeah. feel that and then a shot back to his face just going in the middle of this fight i have to stop and scream at the pain that just occurred <laughs> that had nothing yeah. to do with the fight i mean nothing to do with yeah. the physical contact of yeah. the fight um also you see some Raimi, i think in this movie because of that use of that camera on two by four when they're yeah. quickly zooming through you know, windows and up to homes and up to characters. It's a pretty um, kinetic You can film. tell that, yeah, it's very kinetic, but you can tell that they might have, you know, allowed Raimi to influence in them. And when you think about the timing of this with Evil Dead and Crime Wave, that makes sense to me. Yeah, and I mean, they were still, I think, like, pretty close to the time. I don't I think, I don't think they were living together anymore uh, or whatever right. their, like, super close situation was at that time. But, yeah, I mean, Raimi's a guy that wants to show you how well he can move the camera and like what he can do with a camera. Mm-hmm. And it does that sensibility it, bleeds over into this a little bit. It definitely does. Doubt. And and it's funny if you look at this film compared to their later films, they still move the camera, but it's much less frenetic. They don't do it as fast, generally. 
this film they do and there are a lot of handheld at moments too yeah. like there, there's there's more um the chase through the house and yeah through the grocery yeah. store is there, there, there's example. more of a uh a willingness to like if not show off at least like be very obvious about the camera movement in ways that i feel like they kind of settle down i feel set design you could you could replace camera movement with set design on this film as well yeah yeah color palette all yeah of it. Yep, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- they're going big and broad here in a lot of ways. Yeah. I feel like the set design is something that gets more heightened as they go on. There's well, it depends on the film too. I well, mean, I, you know, No Country for Old Men. I would not call that, but uh, well, their set design there is more about the vistas and the landscape. Of sure, Texas. but they're not doing a lot. Correct. to They're you know they're just getting Correct. the yeah. Um, I think Oh Brother. I think Hail Caesar. I think like yeah. I mean, there are, again when yeah when they go comedy, but even then, like yes, the set design maybe is just. But I feel like and costuming too. I guess is part of what. I'm yeah, doing. yeah. No, I mean it's all there. There's a lot of attention to a lot of detail that they never lose but i do think they find ways to rein it in a little bit as time goes on or to to keep it a little bit more focused in in a way where where this is it feels more explosive at times yeah and i think i think there's probably some of that that is in service of uh making commercially viable films Mm -hmm. that can play to a wider audience because There is a world in which the Coens really let themselves um, hone in on pushing visual boundaries in a way, or like really let let themselves go with like their unbridled mm-hmm. creativity in such a way that they they alienate audiences. <laughs> but I think they figured out pretty early on, like just like they figured out that we can have the darkness with the comedy mm. in the right balance. They figured out that we can do what we want to artistically and still make commercially viable product yeah. uh, without really sacrificing for either one of those things. Yeah. The yeah. Coen brothers career longevity is a balancing act yeah. that I feel like they have uh, perfected in a way that not a lot of filmmakers do. They think about it in a way that's more deliberate than most filmmakers, I yeah. think. They're, but it's it's fun to see an actor like Cage it, this early in a career like the Coen brothers and see how those two sensibilities kind of interact and how they can work really well. I mean, I think they were they were brilliant to see Cage in this role, and I think he was able to execute perfectly on on what they wanted. But it is funny to think of a, a guy like, again, just based on the stories, a guy like him being put in that situation must have felt confining to him. Probably akin to the friction that Herzog and Kinski felt on set sometimes. There you go, right. You know, yeah. He is the California Klaus Kinski. Whereas all. by the time Cage got around to working with Herzog, and Herzog was probably more into letting Cage, he was. I mean, I think yeah. he let Cage have his way. But he cast that, him for a reason at that point. But Cage also would have had a lot more built up respect and reverence for Herzog than Coen Brothers, who've really just made one film at this point yeah. and you know cage is as known as they are you know what i mean there's yeah. there's like a little bit more of an uh, a meeting of equals here yeah they're peers at this yeah. point yeah whereas cage going to work with herzog and 
2006 or nine? It was in the late 2000s. So 2009 yeah. probably is more just like, wow, I get to work with this guy. Yeah. By the way, Vampire's Kiss 89, that was after oh, this. Oh, it was after this. a couple this. years, yeah. I thought it was yeah. like 84 or 5. Or no, his other big 87 film, Peggy Sue Got Married. We'll have to put that Wait, on so a cage Wait, so he match. had three films in 1987? At least. Those are just three that I know of <laughs> right now. It seems too early in his career for him to be up to that kind of shenanigans. That seems like a, a, a late cage phenomenon of five movies. I, I, we it's obviously, really blowing my mind that Vampire's Kiss came out of this. I can't argue with the the facts, but I would have he assumed. Looks younger. Yeah, Vampire's I would have Kiss. assumed that it came out prior. Maybe because he's clean shaven. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is a specific look. Yeah. <laughs> well, he wears a mustache well, I have to say. We're set yeah. to pop here, honey. Listen. <laughs> We did not discuss Smalls. We did not discuss that the bounty hunter and he share a tattoo. Randall Tex Cobb. Yeah, what was up with that? I I read a review. I I saw a YouTube video that talked about how... Was that his dad or something? No. When John Goodman and the brother come to the house after they break out of prison, the first thing that John Goodman says is, Hey, you uh, old woodpecker. And there is a prison gang called the Woodpeckers or Peckerwoods or something like that. And it <laughs> might be Woods. that they were in a gang together. See, to me, watching it this time, I felt like there were some cutscenes. I felt like the connective tissue might have been more robust, but the mm. film should not have been any longer. No. So what everything they cut makes sense, but there might have been some explanation. Or it's one of those things that the Coen brothers will do from time to time where they throw some kind of visual fact in there that don't they don't explain and leave it to your own imagination i mean i do like that but i don't think age wise he he could be the father that guy could be any age that's true (laughs) he's literally covered in like crap the entire time you know like with soot or one of the filthiest characters ever (laughs) and i do love that reveal of he's about to get shot and he puts his hands up and the grenade pin is on one of his fingers i thought that was really really well done and and it yeah it was it was set up a little bit, but a far enough, bit. far enough before that you might it might have slipped your mind at that point. But as soon as you see it, you're like, oh yeah. He was especially <laughs> cruel to the small things. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they never explain. What, I mean, there's a lot. Actually, there could be a whole fucking movie about that guy, the motorcycle yeah, guy, oh, sure. because yeah. he's got the baby shoes on him at all. T- what the what the fuck is that about? Who knows? Who knows? I, Bounty hunters are uh, Joel, a strange breed, and this was well before Dog. I mean, if anything, yeah. Dog was taking his cues from, from uh, this guy. From yeah. this guy, yeah. I mean, all you know, all that, all of the frustrating stuff about unexplained details about that guy, notwithstanding, unbelievable character design, the costuming and everything, like the two like guns making the X oh, yeah. on his back looks so sick. There's flames coming out of his exhaust all yeah. the time. Like, it's just so funny. Oh, as a kid, that was, and like, easily my, the most uh, memorable part of the film was the uh, was Smalls, the bounty that's, hunter. Yeah. He's, he's probably the most Looney Tunes y- yeah. of anybody in this yeah. movie. Cause it, and he literally explodes. And he so, literally yeah. explodes. And it, it, that's not a real guy. <laughs> like, high real guy, potentially. Yeah. You know, Glenn... So. Realish guy. Yeah, definitely real. Dot T I G E R. I could do it all night, folks. I could uh, do it all night. It's, but yeah, that fucking bounty hunter guy is yeah. wild. Out of this world. I mean, and even 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 Nathan Arizona, like every town has that guy yeah. on TV. You mm-hmm. know, that's a very relatable character. But yeah, that, 
I st- that they're jammies, Yodas and shit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Yodas and shit. Now, if, that, this, that isn't, funny, if yeah. this isn't a farmhouse sale, and I looked it up while it we is, were talking. It is, it, it is, is, it is. Oh, yeah. no, I just was saying on it's, the nose, I was not getting it immediately, but as soon as I took a sip. But on all of the yeah. rating sites, they're just calling it an imperial stout. And oh, yeah. usually they'll say farmhouse when they're talking Often, about the farmhouse yeah. base. But uh, can, I was confused as hell for the first half of enjoying this thing. Because, I'm going to write a letter. Yeah, you write a letter. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> I'm uh, telling you, though, that um, when you are, and we talk about this so often, I'm expecting peaches because there's a big peach on the can, and then I don't get peaches, <laughs> and my palate and my brain are confused. You know, right. you didn't get blackberry from this? No, I was just saying, on this, I was not expecting that farmhouse ale, Oh, okay. and so it took me a while to transition into... Now, that being said, this is a lovely beer, and of course I got the blackberries. I didn't get the bourbon barrels, the aging. Mm, got it a little bit. You know, I didn't get a ton of I barrel feel either. It more than I taste it. It's it's <laughs> weird with these, and this is maybe one of the higher ABV farmhouse imperial stouts that I've ever had. But I agree, like it's sneaky because it does not seem it doesn't have the body that a lot of the heftier imperial stouts will have. It doesn't coat your glass. It doesn't like coat that, the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, it the berry i think brings a certain kind of lightness to it in a, yeah. in a weird way and overall i agree i was throwing this back probably a lot more quickly than i should at 12.4 percent uh, you and me both baby yeah no, so this is it's it's like a, a little bit uh a little bit deceiving yeah that's the thing about jester king when you see there like when you pulled that out of your magic bag tonight david and had we elected to go with it and we did it's going to be interesting it's going to be worth talking about. There's going to be conversation to be had because they are working on such an interesting level. Just mm. like Nicolas Cage. Exactly. There you go. Could not have been a better time. Um, and this is this is no different. Okay, fine. It's farmhouse. And I'm, what I'm assuming then is that they're employing the imperial stout brewing techniques to a farmhouse base. And if that is the case, what might you yield? Throw in maple and blackberry, and they're just, they, it's like they're very ballsy. It's a ballsy brewery, Chester mm-hmm. King. Always has been. Yeah. yeah. I think that this particular beer is delicious. I liked it a lot. And complex. Just like Raising Arizona. Well, well look at that. Well done. And we're just getting started. You wanted I mean, a Nick, you wanted a Nicolas Cage performance where he goes balls out. You got it. <laughs> Just getting started is the understatement of this podcast. Right. Well, we there, there's definitely a ball. There's happened. definitely balls out in the second half, though. I don't know if it's Cage who has his balls out. Mm, okay. When we return. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> uh, we, Joe we didn't, said stay we didn't on figure task, any so of this. No, he's task. right. We got to get into the second. You you can't like when you go into the cage, you you don't just take a big pause and like languish about and like oh what are we doing? No, you stick to the mission, or you're gonna get pummeled. You're yeah. gonna get crushed. We got a big film we're going to talk about in the second half. This is, I don't know that we've ever dealt with a film this big before. I don't know if we have, and I would love to synopsize it. And before you get to opening that beer, I will say that over the last couple of days, I've listened to 
the entire blank check episode on the first Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie, which is about a th- it's over a three-hour episode on that film, and I'm about halfway through a three-hour episode on Spider-Man Two, which is uh, the guest on that episode is Chris Gethard. But because I listened to that whole Spider-Man episode, every time we say get in the cage, I just think of Bonesaw. I got you for three minutes. Three <laughs> minutes of playtime. You know? <laughs> you know where, do you remember what I'm talking yeah. about? I, and it's, it's just as fucking with me in my, in my head. Well, I had to say it out if, loud. If you need to think of me as Bonesaw in this moment, you do that. That's that. Bonesaw <laughs> is ready. Um... Well, we're ready to talk about another Cage film, and this is a Cage film that actually has a funny little connection, uh, at least in terms of dialogue, with uh, a Cage film that we did. It was the last uh, Cage match we did, right? Face Off? We did We did that in the last Cage yes. match? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so episode 150, folks, if you want to go back, um, where we did Face Off, classic line in that film where he says, I could eat a peach peach for hours. hours. Um, The film that we're watching today has a bit of dialogue that's that's different to that, but definitely related. Um, Peach is involved, um, and and it definitely has something to do with the eating of that peach. Uh, We're going to be drinking the peach here with this beer from Casey Brewing and Blending out of uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado. We've had them on the program thrice now with this, this will be the third one. yeah yeah thank um, you harold for the first two i believe or yeah maybe one i think you're right two. and he actually facilitated this one i i mean i i paid for it but it was a friend of his who was able to get this to us fuck yeah um is that funky blender uh in episode 123 carlos that i think appeared on your top five beers of the year that year loved funky blender yeah Delicious stuff. Yeah, again with blackberries about 10 episodes later. Yeah. So I'm excited to try this again. It's been a few episodes since we had Casey, but mm-hmm. this will be our third outing. This is an ale they do that is aged in oak barrels with peaches. Mm-hmm. It is called Leaner. Has the peach right on the label, that little drawing of the peach. So again, peach dialogue, peach beer. We're going to drink another Casey beer. Hopefully it lives up to our expectations. Pop that cork, David. Set to pop here, honey. <laughs> And what other movie could we be talking about with such a um, such a highly billed beer from such a highly regarded brewing company? Right. What uh, could possibly live up to that kind of pairing? What on earth could we do? And the only thing that we could do, because we've we've discussed uh, Nick Cage with Herzog, we've discussed Nick Cage. With the Cullens. What other all-time perennial filmmaker has he worked with that we have not yet touched? We've touched on Nick Cage with John Woo. What else could we do? And it has to be Nick Cage with David Lynch. Sure. And we we did Blue Velvet on the show. Right. We've we touched upon Lynch. 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 We, we have touched upon Lynch. But what could be more frenetic, more intense, more volatile than a Nick Cage, David Lynch collaboration. So of course, as you know, we are talking about 1990s wild at heart. This was adapted from a Barry Gifford novel and it stars Nick Cage, Laura Dern, Willem Dafoe, Diane Ladd, Crispin Glover, (laughs) Harry Dean Stanton, Isabella Rossellini. The list goes on and I'm just going to quickly read the IMDb synopsis because otherwise I'll be lost in a 
whirlwind of plot lines and characters. Um, but young lovers, Sailor and Luna, run from the v- variety of weirdos that Lula's mom has hired to kill Sailor. Um, so Sailor is played by Nick Cage, Sailor Ripley, who at the beginning of the film we see uh, kill a man who is attacking him with a knife. He goes to jail for it. Another film where we see Nick Cage in jail, as with Raising Arizona. That's right. Uh, gets out of jail, calls Face Lula's off. house. uh Lula's house played by Laura Dern and uh, her character's mother played by her actual mother mm-hmm. uh, Diane Ladd answers and says you will not see <laughs> you will not see this boy or what and of course what does Lula do she goes to pick him up from jail immediately <laughs> to see this boy and uh, they go off on their own kind of fairy tale road trip romantic adventure and of course um, Lula's mother is incensed Marietta is the character's name, mm. uh, and sends a variety of people after them to uh, dispatch Sailor and free her daughter from his clutches. And the people that we meet along the way, the things that we see, the events that occur are just... It's I a mean, slice of life. It's like it's like America <laughs> on display in, in all of its glory. I'm just, so the, fil- the film starts in Cape Fear the subtitle at the very beginning when he commits the manslaughter that sends him to jail says between the borders of North and South Carolina. But that's essentially where the film starts after he gets out of jail. They drive down the South to New Orleans and they go through Texas and then et cetera. They they get stranded in Texas. Yeah. (laughs) I'm disappointed in us because when we discussed blue velvet back in episode 77, that was a six beer episode. So Oof, we're not really. Yeah, I remember what we did, did we, we did we all that? of the beers that were um, <laughs> presented in Blue Velvet. Oh, we Paps, did PBR, Resin, Heineken, Heineken. Oh my uh, gosh! Yeah, and then we did a, some yeah, other, some that, other that's things funny. too. Huh. But uh, we, I guess we're just gonna hit the two unless Paps, a, a rogue beer Blue makes Red. its way out of the uh, out of the bag here. I just want to say. Um, Remember that Contrails peaches that we had? Oh, yeah, was yeah. each our favorite beer from, I yeah, think, two was years ago, maybe? So putting my nose in this thing. Getting some of those vibes? It's like a skunky peach. Skunky peach? What, what is that? Because mm. this is... What, what is the style on this again? It's a um, it, it's a farmhouse ale. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, It's got that farmhouse all over. All right, into Wild so, Heart. So, yeah, 1990... Um, that's when Twin Peaks debuts, correct? It's ju- yeah, it's just after um, Twin Peaks has arrived on the scene. And so we've yeah. got a film that uh, is written for the screen and directed by David Lynch. Cinematographer is Frederick uh, Elms, which will... Who's worked several times over, yeah. And we'll certainly talk about him uh, going forward. And score by Angelo Badalamenti. Badalamenti? I don't... There's a lot of... Inter- I always say Battlementi, but that, that's probably wrong. Who who also you know is known for his work in Twin Peaks, and who worked with David Lynch on Julie Cruz's album uh, Floating. Rest in peace. She Rest just in peace. Passed. Julie Cruz just recently passed. Um, uh, Cheryl Lynn, who plays Laura Palmer, makes an appearance in this film as well. Cheryl Lee, right? Cheryl Lee, sorry, right? Um, Cheryl and Fenn is the other actress from Twin Peaks who shows right. up as yes. well. So it, Correct. Yeah. I, I merged the two together. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot going on in this film. It's a it's a film that with that started as uh, the producer 
bringing the novel to David Lynch, asking him to produce, he reads it and says, no, I want, I want to make this movie. And then immediately takes the reins. It comes together very quickly. Um, Laura Dern having collaborated with Lynch already in Blue Velvet. Right. Uh, so, um, with a with a much more reserved kind of innocent character. Yes. Yeah. And so, where does that leave us? Where <laughs> where do we begin to discuss this film? This is the movie that Baz Luhrmann wished that he was making about Elvis. <laughs> Ah, uh, you might not be wrong about that. I mean, if we're making a fictionalized Elvis movie like Baz Luhrmann is yeah. with this new Austin Butler, Tom Hanks project, I mean, we might as well have Nick Cage play him and just completely make a bunch of other shit up too, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, a road trip crime romance starring Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe filtered through the Wizard of Oz. I mean, does any of that make any sense to anybody? It totally works, though. All of the (laughs) illusions that you just mentioned are there. I mean, Mm -hmm. you see Nicolas Cage's love of Elvis that he has in real life as he's He's wearing the snakeskin jacket that represents his individuality as well as his How did you pick up on that? What what was it that tapped you into the meaning of that? There was a a subtext (laughs) there. You you see them talk about uh, the Wizard of Oz often, but you also see Laura Dern at some point click her heels with red shoes on. You also see see the Wicked Witch the, the, the good witch <laughs> in a bubble in a vision. The, you see the good witch, yeah, yes, uh, played Glenda. by Laura Palmer, right? Uh, you see, um, you know, Diane Ladd playing the evil witch of the, the east, yeah. not yeah. of the west. Of the east, okay, sorry, yes, because they're the, from the east. That this film immediately is after Blue Velvet, I think, is important to talk about. It is four years, but he was also deep in production of Twin Peak in the mean Twin Peaks in the meantime. Blue Velvet, when it came out, made a huge impact in the art cinema world. We can't deny that. Uh, when it came out, it's still, of course, it's it's developed into even more of a cult phenomenon than yeah. then. So to see that director's follow up as this, I think, is very very yeah. interesting because Blue Velvet is weird on purpose, right? I mean, we can probably all agree on that. It's David Lynch not oh, just showing it, us... But it, Eraserhead is weird on purpose. I mean, he's I been mean, weird on purpose. Weird. Yeah, I don't know if Eraserhead got the kind of like no, o- but I'm overall saying like notoriety. That... That when it came out, it certainly made a splash, but Blue Velvet was the one that was like, we need to watch this guy. He Elephant is an auteur. Man. He is a... And what is he going to do next? It's, it is it is this. No, I... So, I, I mean, he's I, a weird guy, though. I mean, like... He puts absurd strange provocative mm-hmm. off-putting things into his films and mm-hmm. yet he acts as if it's all as normal as off-putting possible. visual like uh, people like on purpose you know uh, he, he looks for people that look quote-unquote odd compared to your typical hollywood movie star look well and he also does things to enhance that right willem dafoe willem here those aren't teeth. his actual teeth right. by the way yeah. if, if you didn't no. know that bobby peru has a very specific set of teeth i'm thinking of the um ladies that in blue velvet that what, no in this film what is the correct term they've got oh, a few extra pounds on them and they're all topless the dancing outside right, i right, mean right. he's putting things on screen to be provocative on purpose but he's also in blue velvet certainly trying to to we talked about it back in episode 77 i'm going to go back and listen to it after we after we get re- done recording here because i'm curious to see if we say something like this i know that we have to it's suburbia but what happens when you peel back the layers and see the well but sub- this isn't even giving you that like blue velvet at least you start 
with this kind of idyllic mm-hmm. Americana of right. the suburbs. And if we go deeper, we're going to find And the then darkness. we're digging beneath and we're seeing where the... This one... From the get-go. We are talking about the criminal underworld, right? I mean, Sailor from the get-go, as, as Carlos already pointed out, like, we meet him killing another, brutally killing. And now I know it's manslaughter, it's defense. I mean, he was about to be killed. He, right. You know, he had a knife. He was defending himself. His reaction to having a knife pulled But then him. he really goes to town on the guy and he yeah. smashes his head against the floor to where his brains are falling out of the back of his head sure. and throws him up against the wall. I mean, it's this such is... A, it's such an interesting scene because the film... Well, the titles start with, like, the fire and, like, the yes. sound effects of... The fire and the a lot of extreme close-ups of the matches, matches the cigarettes, lighters, cigarettes, it, they, flames. All of those close-ups are matched with intense sound design, and so Oof. we go from that to kind of a, a a song that I feel like I've heard before, but like a, like jazz music in this kind of like nice yeah. kind of opulent space to metal. Yes. Like really intense, like heavy oh, metal, power, power, mad, power, power mad, yes. power mad, uh, while he beats somebody to death. I mean, it reminded me of that Naked City song. Yeah. Uh, that's like the jazz, and then it goes into the grind core with the squealing alto, or alto <laughs> saxophone, uh-huh. and then it goes back into like the kind of jazz again. <laughs> yeah. and it just keeps doing that. It keeps yeah. oscillating between jazz and like intense grind core the entire song. Mm hmm. It reminded me of John Zorn, like yeah, the film version of that music. It, I agree, and, and it, it's also a very active first scene. Oh in, yeah, in that oh, yeah. we're not we're not building up to violence. No, we're starting off, and it's also your girlfriend's mom. You were gonna have sex with her, right. and that wait now he's killing. I mean, yeah. and obviously we we learn later that no, she was cor- cornering him. She was giving him, a, you know, like and. There's reasons for that, and that, you we know, learn a lot. We do, we do. But right out of the gate, to define this character as one who's potentially hooking up with his girlfriend's mom in the bathroom, and then is willing to kill this man on the spot when he, you know, confronts him about it, mm-hmm. like that is a as and, intense a character introduction as we've had, and yeah. some classism there too, because the mother is attempting, kind of, to raise her daughter to not go out with a, you know, a. a Totally, yeah. You know, it's though, uh, though the mother is so clearly part of the underworld. Correct, <laughs> but almost in this way where she believes that it's above board, it's presentable, right? right. I or mean, that, wh- or maybe she's trying to keep Lula out of the trappings of the life. Yeah, she's I mean, it's a road trip you know. film in the sense that the plot meanders through the adventures that they have. I mean, their goal is just to go on an, an adventure, I guess. Well, they're, they want to go to California. I mean, they, there's this idea of the like they're going to go to the Emerald City, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there there are these allusions to Wizard of Oz, like they're sure. on their way to this magical destination that's going to where life is going to be better. Right. But obviously, you know, we we only really make two definitive stops here. <laughs> you know, we we spend some time in New Orleans where they're kind of having. A, a good time generally, but there are on there are some folks on their heels that may have some. Uh, the, the mother is hired and uh, employed, uh, employed, and then asked her boyfriend Johnny to, Farragut, yeah. right, to uh, to track them down. Right, right, and also sent Santos and yeah. his people Correct. after them simultaneously. Right, who are a much more nefarious bunch. A much more nefarious bunch. Um, they end their trip and in San Antonio? 
Um, no, they they go through by San Antonio to Big Tuna. Oh, that's right. Big yeah. Tuna. Big Tuna, Big Tuna uh, is where Lobo. he wants to make a stop there because he has some connections there, mm. obviously, right? Yeah. He he goes there, uh, the, he being uh, he um, a, Sailor. Sailor has to talk to Isabella Rossellini's character. Right, because yeah. she may have some information about what's the underworld saying about well, she me. Does. Am I am and she I withholds. Right, yeah. right. Even though they had a pact, yeah. apparently, yeah. Um, never trust a pact. Yeah, and then never. that's when they meet Bobby Peru. Okay, so it's every time I feel, every time I feel like I know where to begin with this, I I then start thinking about it more and completely just I'm like, what is going on? We it, it should be noted that. Diane Ladd was nominated for an Oscar for her performance. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. This is one of the wildest performances. It is the fact that there is a potentially wilder performance than Nicolas Cage starring in a David well, Lynch film is crazy. Now that's where I was going earlier when what was it going in who had their balls out, right? Like I actually, watching this film again, and it had been quite a few years since I had watched it all the way through, but watching this film again, it actually surprised me how restrained Nicolas Cage was throughout this film. I, it's, a, it's a wild character, don't get me wrong, yeah. but he plays it fairly believably and straight given the circumstances that the character's in. Whereas you have, you have Defoe, you have Ladd, you have some of the other performances in this film that I feel like really go to a level that... Juana, uh, the woman that plays Juana. Uh, yeah. That's a pretty big performance. I, I mean... I, Grace Zabriskie, totally big. I mean, that huge, that is crazy. And in huge. fact, even though they got cut down quite a bit... Um, the 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 other guys uh drop shadow drop shadow and yeah. uh um reggie yes no. is it reggie yeah the, they are some wild characters they are. and the guy that plays drop shadow is in twin peaks as well mm-hmm. um i i see what i i agree with what you're saying even though nick cage comes out super strong in the opening sequence not just the like yeah. violent part of it but the before that like what he's doing in that scene is kind of big and the fact that he's doing like this wild Elvis impersonation the entire time is pretty big. But he acknowledges um, it too. It's not like a. I mean, he 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 sings Elvis songs. He yeah, is, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he is directly emulating Elvis at times. Sure. And so the fact that you have him doing that and it's still <laughs> a more muted performance. I mean, I think even Laura Dern might go bigger than he does. Not in making big necessarily character choices, but just like the intense sexuality of that character and how big a part intense and incredibly upsetting at times. At times. I mean, yes. we, you know, the, the sexual trauma of this character mm-hmm. is something that yeah. I don't think I had ever fully appreciate or, or as fully appreciated as this time watching it again after like, it I think I'm troubling. a little more, I think I'm more sensitive to it now. I've heard more stories. People have, you know, it, yeah. it, and you have daughters. What? Yeah. What, what an upsetting story. This backstory, this character has. And also that scene with Bobby Peru. It, there is. So, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a minute, but when we first talked about this movie, you had mentioned to me, David, that you had watched the additional slash deleted scenes. Mm -hmm. And so immediately upon finishing 
the movie, I went to the bonus features to see what all the Blu-ray bonus features yeah. had to offer. And one of the things is the uncensored Bobby Peru scene, right? which I did not watch. But it, but it wasn't that scene. <laughs> it wasn't that scene? No. Okay. I saw it and I was like, it's not watching it, that. You know, there there's a later scene, the final Bobby Peru scene. Okay, with the where shotgun. He comes up, yes, and he blows his own head off. Because I know it was toned down to keep out of the extra. Yeah, they added that, so that's what, smoke uh, yeah. that covered a little bit of the yeah uh, I mean it's just an unadulterated version of that last scene. Uh, no right. I hear what you're saying it wasn't a longer extended cut of the I thought it might have been because to me that's motels the big well, let's piece in, of Bobby Peru's let's dive into that sexuality character. I mean this is a girl that was sexually assaulted by a not an uncle figure in her life no by several people and we see yeah. that scene over and uh, a, several a cousin times in the, in and the an film, uncle, which I guess incestuous, is in the, in yeah. the additional scenes, actually. The right, because that doesn't come that out. That doesn't in, make it right. And we right. see it juxtaposed. Juxtaposed? Are we a pizza? This side? film was <laughs> juxtaposed with their sexuality. Nicolas Cage and, and Laura Dern's sexuality. Right. Like, sometimes you see which a, is qu- intense, yeah. a quick cut of... It's very rarely quick. Their sex scenes are pretty. No, I'm saying a quick cut to the 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 trauma, the after oh, okay, trauma yeah, yeah, yeah. of the uncle figure. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out the entire time what are we what are we saying here? What what is he telling us? What are we to glean from the that relationship of her current sexuality in a monogamous relationship with Nicolas Cage? Yeah, to that trauma that you know defines maybe sure some of her sexuality and i i've i've thought about this a little bit in the last six hours since i watched this movie yeah uh and i don't i don't know if he's trying to say anything specifically i don't know if there's a point or a message to that particular part of her backstory i just wonder if he's presenting a darker aspect of America because so so much of this movie is rooted in uh, the time in which it was made and the idea that there's all this violence nihilism yeah it's kind of nihilistic there's all this violence permeating throughout American society certainly juxtaposed with this kind of idyllic retrospective look at the 50s and Elvis and all of this stuff and and so I wonder whether it's not as much him trying to say anything about the relationship between past trauma and adult sexuality that you could possibly grow into as much as it is like just giving us a idea of this time and of the kind of tumultuousness of the era in which he sets this movie. And as I'm saying it out loud, maybe what he's actually doing is shedding a light on the, or he's removing the rose colored glasses of the fifties and saying like things in the past are maybe not as glamorous and as clean cut as we thought that they were. Maybe even this came out in 90, maybe even just a few years prior, that glut of 80s sex comedy, that, that sexuality when we peel back the curtain like we do with Blue Velvet and idyllic suburban life, when we look into people's sex lives... Because that movie lives, is very damning of, like, this is what's actually happening. Uh, oh Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. What's actually happening is that women and men have horrible stories about their sexual trauma that, that we need to include into the conversation. Mm. I, I, I may be reaching there. 
No, I mean, I, I, I think it's complicated for sure. It is. I mean, I, I think because he, he, he films those scenes so erotically, the actual sex between Cage and Dern. It's, yeah, he's trying to do that. You yeah. know that. Let's show different positions and orgasms and her hand twitching and orgasm over, you know, over and over yeah. and over again. Right. Even right. with uh, uh, Defoe's character, it happens again. Right. Uh, in a troubling way. Yes. Yeah. I mean. Sorry, Dave. I interrupted you. That's okay. I I think that he is somebody who, especially in this era, is wanting to somehow pull in all of these different all of these different things that coexist around sexuality, around um, how it manifests, and like not just give you the easy erotic drama or uh, sex comedy. But also like the trauma that sex can bring, also the kinds of uh, you know insane kind. Well, I'd say insane. I should be careful about my language. But the, like all of the entanglements that are involved, the way that again, more so than anything. Although Twin Peaks also has. I mean, this is the same time as Twin Peaks. He's exploring these themes of mm-hmm. like incest, the, the sexuality within families, the way that that sort of leaves these permanent marks on people and scars, especially young women who, who are most uh, overtly affected by it. You know, like, he's trying to work through these things. I mean, he's clearly, he's he is consciously choosing to do that. Um, and I don't think there's any pat conclusion that you can come to. I mean, it's not like he's giving you, he's showing you Sailor and Lula as a loving couple who have what seems like a very fulfilling sexual relationship. He's also showing you how sex gets used as a manipulative tool among people, whether it be, um, you know, the, the mother Marietta with right. uh, the detective uh, uh, Farragut, you know, like uh, the way that she uses it with him. Yeah. Um, you're seeing it as a tool of torture, essentially, when you're looking at these memories, these flashbacks to Uncle Pooch, the, you know, Carlos made the point, yes, it was cut, but Dell, Christmas Dell, was more than just a, a joke originally, and he was made her pregnant. And there, there was, you know, there is and a we, quick... We, the, the theatrical cut has the abortion scene. Quick, very, very short version of it, yes. But what we can believe... Given the context of it in the theatrical cut, is that it was from Uncle Pooch, right? But that's, the what, that's what I took. Yes, yeah. but there was there were scenes cut in which Christmas Dell, her cousin, is the one that had done that. Right. So there was even more yeah. <laughs> sexual yeah. trauma on the cutting room floor, which probably not the best time as far as the tone of our conversation is going <laughs> to, to say this. Crispin Glover is amazing in this. Movie. Oh, he's. <laughs> I mean, this this is. Yeah, this this is crazy In, stuff. I mean, did you got to watch my language? This is really mind blowing stuff when you see the kind of performance he delivers here. In in just a very short sequence in the film, that not a yeah. lot of screen time. He has like one line of dialogue, <laughs> and he is perfectly cast. Yeah. I mean, if anyone could give yeah. the performance he gives in this movie, I mean, it's him. Like yeah. he's the only one that I think I can think of that could do this thing. Yeah. In the time that he's given. Then you've got this whole notion of um, jealous masculinity. You know, Nicolas Cage, don't even, like, don't disrespect my girl at all. Because that will set me off into, a, you know, a violent rage where you will be punished. And then followed up by 
a uh, metal band playing an Elvis song. Right. <laughs> the most abrupt, yeah, <laughs> like total shit they could have. Right, and I love when they hand him the mic. He gets to sing Elvis. He's like, one, you know, of, one of two or three times. You know this one? And then they're just like, yeah, sure. And they're doing perfect harmonies. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's how it works. <laughs> so, most most metal bands so have a couple Elvis songs Ryan, in their repertoire. So they, then they, they meet uh, the, the Willem Dafoe character. And that's when the film kind of, I think, really takes a turn into you know an, a, another whole section that really moves the, the action along. Yeah, because evil enters the chat, right? Like, I mean, that's oh, what that character he's is. He's pretty evil, yeah. I mean, that's his function, sure. right? You know? And uh, they're low on cash. You got 40 bucks in their pocket, and they're still trying. They're halfway to California. And so, a baby on the way at that point. Yeah. yeah. So he presents uh, a, a, a feed store heist. There's $2,500. You know, those those lucrative feed store heists yeah. that you hear tell of? A similar heist to what we see in Raising Arizona. Yep. Oh, sure, I yeah. Um, and... <laughs> things go so batshit crazy at that point. I mean, yeah. in that well, so Lynchian he, way that you expected. Well, Meyer. because then Peru reveals that he's really out to get. Okay? He's, I mean, he's, he's a hitman hired. Yeah, to, he's, he's just trying to get. So it was all a setup just so he could get him in a compromising position where, where he had his pants down, right? Or an unloaded weapon in, right. in this case. Um, Those are dummies, you dummy. <laughs> I mean, classic. Class he knife. shoots the feed store guys with a shotgun. One of them's hand is blown off, and it shows them <laughs> searching, <comically> yeah. searching <laughs> for the hand while they're talking about. They can sew it on. They can sew it on these days. <laughs> Where the fuck is Where it? Is it? Yeah. Where is my hand? And that's and uh, you know just comic but ultra violent blood soaked touches. That but that is something that is so important that we touch on is because when you. Google this movie and you click on the Wikipedia, it says a comedy drama film by David Lynch or whatever. And the fact that, based on what we've discussed thus far, that there's any way that you could describe this as a comedy is insane. Mm. It is so dark, and there are such intense, traumatic themes at play that the fact that Lynch is somehow able to balance any amount of levity in this movie is... Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, very akin to On the Count of Three, which we discussed a couple weeks back. Like, how on earth were they able to inject any sort of comedy into such a dark topic? And he does it at times, and it's it's wildly impressive. And one thing that I kind of wanted to circle back to as far as, you know, we were talking about the, uh, like, trauma endured by Laura Dern's character in juxtaposition with you know, her representation as an adult and whatnot. Um, but with that and with, with all of that in mind and how complex that is and the relationship between like violence and sexuality is depicted in this film, you're also talking about a film in which the director didn't like the end of the novel and change. He, he does the opposite of what you would expect. And he, the novel doesn't Instead have of making a ha- it darker, he, he makes it... He gives yeah. it a happy ending. Yeah. Which is so weird. Given the rest of the movie... I mean, it makes sense in the way that he justifies it because he says the ending where they split up, which is how the novel ends, they separate, and doesn't make any sense because of how intense their love is depicted throughout the mm-hmm. story. So it makes more sense that they end up together. But given everything that we just saw, the fact that it, it's... Yeah, well, ba- the, the it, it makes it's feels, baffling. The ending feels tacked on to me. 
it, it, it's six years later, their child is, has been born while yeah. he is serving a prison sentence for that robbery. Uh, and he gets out of prison. The plan is for them to continue their adventure now with their six-year-old, seven-year-old son. But then he leaves, gets beat up by, gets punched and knocked out by a interestingly racially diverse, yeah, diverse I thought gang. That. I thought uh, about that too. Everyone is represented in that gang and uh, calls him the uh, the homosexual F word. They yeah. punch him out. His nose swells up two times, three times bigger than whatever. He apologizes. Glinda for the arrives in the. Glinda, well, he, he has the, his yeah. vision. Glinda, yeah. the vision, good yeah. witch, arrives, and then he runs back to say, "No, let's let's do it." It felt a little bit tacked on. This 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 film, unlike I Blue know, Velvet, like is it. very 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 indulgent and I think hmm. less entertaining. I'm not huh. as big of a fan as I think the two of you are, might be queuing yourselves up to be. I would suspect that you're right about that. Yeah, I, I like this. I, 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 it. This is a great film. I mean, it. This is peak Lynch with the gloves off, just totally going as wild, literally. You know, here, here with the as wild at heart, as wild as he possibly can. I feel like he had he had broken a certain. You know, through, he always was weird, but then he found a way to kind of mesh it with enough of a recognizable story with Blue Velvet. And kind of took that and launched with that into Twin Peaks and this and Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. Mulholland and Drive. That, a bit later, but I really do think this was a moment where he burned as brightly as he could. And so I would put Mulholland Drive above this film any day. I think Mulholland Drive is a great film. Don't I get might, me wrong. I might I'm, too. I'm not going to say, I don't even like comparing to, to a certain extent, but this is as... I mean, this is this is wilder. This is more I'm not, I'm over not the top. Argue with that. This is him like poking into those holes that like we're not comfortable with incest, rape. The, these are things that, and I'm not even saying you should be able to play with those things. I'm not telling. I'm. I'm this isn't even me celebrating it as much as it's a moment where I have to recognize. Oh my God, he was doing as much as he could to provoke as much response as he possibly could, still putting it in service of a story, still putting it in service of these characters that had something to say about the American experience and in a way that I just don't think, like, he had to back off of eventually. And he did. He he mm-hmm. went and, and he found other ways to be weird and he found other ways to insert stuff in. Oh, but, I'd call Mulholland uh, Drive weird. But sure, I just think, certainly. I think it's less indulgent and more cinematic. I don't know. Like, yeah, I, it's pre- I, the fact that it is like set and rooted in Hollywood is pretty indulgent. But one thing that I would say to what David is saying is that with this movie, while you have all of these kind of hot button topics, this kind of edginess, this kind of kind of provocative nature to the storyline, David is one hundred percent right when he says that it's in service to the story. But and what it's really in service of more than like a story and like a narrative arc is these two characters specifically because what we get in this movie is two fully fleshed out characters, two fully actualized human beings that yes have traumatic, troubling, you know, storylines or backstories or whatever, but still full fully realized human beings in their own right and. Who you know, are able to overcome their traumas to have 
a satisfying and fulfilling life together, ultimately. I mean, and that's what elevates it past any kind of like exploitation yeah. or just like I mean, uh, I shock think that, value. And in that, to that end, the happy ending seems critical to me here. Like, if we had left these characters in despair and they were broken up and, and we didn't have that somewhat magical ending to the thing, it would have been. I, I feel like it would have all kind of like, well, what are you saying? And I, and I think part of what this film is saying is that I mean, it, it's, a, it's a banal sentiment, but love conquers all. Like these two yeah. found each other. They're able to support each other on their terms and they've actually come together and you get that beautiful moment where he's singing Love Me Tender to her mm-hmm. over the credits. And it's just, I mean... There, there's something truly magical about well, it. Well, that, that's a happy ending for the credits, but we don't know if these this this pair has any kind of happy ending at all. I mean, they are back together when it looked for 30 seconds that they weren't going to be. Yeah. But other than that, we don't know what the well, happy ending is. Well, that's where he chooses is. to leave it I mean, for it's, us. it's suggested. I, I, I hear what you're saying, Joe, but but I but I think it's a, that he leaves us where he does, I think was the right There move. are finer David Lynch films. Now, as far as the, in my opinion... <laughs> As as far as the Nicolas Cage performance here in his career, we're going back to the context of that. I mean, this is a a great, I think, balance. You're right. Which one of you said it, that that it's actually a kind of a tempered performance given the craziness of the entire film. But uh, he is given some leash. Yeah. I think Herzog gives him a little more leash in uh, Bad Lieutenant. But, uh, you know, which is... decades away right uh, yeah, almost yeah. almost 20 years okay but yeah mm-hmm. uh almost 30 no because th- this was 90 so that and that was around 2009 i think yeah so, so. if it was in 2010 my bad at the math 20, 20 yeah yeah <laughs> fuck <laughs> it's okay I'm gonna, right? edit, I'm gonna edit it out uh no i shouldn't Yo, don't edit out your badness <laughs> <laughs> leaving our badness in um, yeah, not my favorite Lynch film, but on the cage meter it, it, it is, it, it is, it, I, anytime he's allowed to, to go off the rails a little yeah. bit, and he certainly is here. Yeah. In a way that the Coens didn't really allow him. That's what I was saying right. earlier. They and were, I really do. The chemistry between him and Dern is palpable. Sure. I remember yeah. seeing this. So the, the, to I go agree. back, yes. Raising Arizona was a film that I remember in my youth. This is also a film that I remember from my youth, <laughs> from a slightly different... I, w- I was about 13, 14 when this came on to cable, and, you know, HBO probably, mm-hmm. and uh, and I remember... So half of it was cut... Oh, well, if it was HBO, sorry. Yeah, I no, I think, it was cut out. I think it was uncut. I, I, I think I was seeing the theatrical version. you didn't know... You know no, right, right, other, right. Other than maybe I... Yeah, You're just watching some crazy shit. Watching it with a friend, you know, sleeping over at his house, and just... Wow, what an impression this film made on me! And I can it, imagine. And, it, and and part of that was that couple at the center of it. Like I didn't know who Laura Dern was, and maybe I was getting a sense of who Nicolas Cage was by that point because I had seen Raising Arizona and some other things. But but nonetheless, I they really are in my mind this kind of iconic couple, Lula and Sailor, from this film. Where I I kind of there's part of me that wishes they would do another film together and and I would get to see these two reconnect because I really do think there was a kind of chemistry there. That, there there yeah. certainly was. And it was so interesting watching this movie because it came out in 90. But for me, when someone says Laura Dern, 
the image that immediately pops into my head is 1993 Jurassic Park. Yeah. That is my mental image of Laura Dern. I can. It doesn't matter how many more of her movies I see. She'll always because be, I've seen yeah. her in other things, but mm-hmm. she's always that character from Jurassic Park Huge in that specific yeah. point in time, right? And so seeing her in this, as I mean, because she's not. I mean, she's. Don't get me wrong, beautiful in Jurassic Park, but she's not a sexual being no. in that movie. No. So other other than just being in proximity to Jeff Goldblum makes everybody a sexual being. So <laughs> yes. yes, there is. It's a hard bit. to uh, it's hard to dinosaur shed. shit is sexy. Into it's hard. Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's hard to shed the sexuality of uh, uh, bare chested. Have either Jeff Goldblum? I, I, I we did not do Jurassic World on the show. Nor I shall not, we. I have not seen it. Did y'all? No. We'll okay. talk about no. it in after hours. Patreon. Consciously avoided it. But yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, seeing her in this as such a rapid departure yeah from that character in Jurassic Park was very interesting for me uh given my relationship with her as an actress but I am glad I finally saw this movie it's been on my list for a very long time oh this is your first time it was my first time totally worth buying the blu-ray for uh glad I did glad I got the bonus features you should play this Um, in the shop just with no sound on (laughs) all day all day uh but yeah so Great movie. My favorite Lynch, maybe not up there for me, 100%. Uh, yeah, I'm glad. A lovely Nick Cage performance, of course, as they all are. Yeah. Uh, loved it. Yeah. Had a great oh, time. Man, the cage is coming to an end. I guess we talk about a beer and we got to. Well, that's how you got to do it, right? We can continue it in After Hours. What y'all think of this? The, uh, the leaner. Leaner by Casey Brewing that is bad a thousand with the two times we've had them prior to now. I, I get where you're coming from, Joe, on the nose. That there was a little bit of a you know a, a little bit of a barnyard kind of funkiness mm-hmm. to uh, to it. The flavor was a lot more subdued. Uh, it, it was uh, I, I mean I definitely got the peach. It was pretty it was pretty sour. So it, it definitely had the sourness going, um, but pretty refreshing too. I mean I I enjoyed this sipping on this while we were talking. My in-laws just got back from a cross-country thing. Oh, yeah? And brought me back a tulip glass from one of the breweries that they visited. Uh, we brought you the tulip glass. We brought our son a Pilsner glass because he prefers those. But I always see you drinking out of a tulip glass. And I do. Because mm-hmm. you don't like a lager. Because I want to put my nose in there. And yeah. this, the nose on this film is, uh, film, the nose <laughs> on this beer is so unpleasant and remains so huh. the entire time. You think time straight up unpleasant. Unpleasant. Oh. Like uh, unenjoyable. And it's in the back of your, uh, it's in the back of the flavor as well. Hmm. I, I wasn't a fan of this. And huh. uh, that makes me sad because uh, we have enjoyed the, like Casey the two the times past, yeah. that, we've, that we've gone out. Now the peach is there and the flavor is okay, but there's something in that back of the palate there that reminds me of that nose, which is, it just, it didn't smell good. Hmm. I gotta disagree. I, I, I have swirled this in my glass to no end. <laughs> trying to, to try unlock to, that aroma. To try to unlock the unpleasant aroma that, that I'm you're, finding. That you're finding in. <laughs> no, I'm not getting it. Fantastic foley work, by the way. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that you guys are. Enjoying I get. It. I I I feel like I really just get kind of funky peach. I mean, it's not just straight peach, obviously, because it does have that kind of sourness of the farmhouse. But I don't think I'm getting anything I would describe as unpleasant, and certainly not on the on the taste. Either. Oh, it's so subjective, isn't it? I mean, that's why. I mean, I, for some reason, I not don't, at all. It's objective. I'm right, and you're wrong. <laughs> I don't mind bad mouthing films, but I mind bad mouthing breweries because I just know that they're working so well, hard. Well, it's not about bad mouthing. Right. I mean, I, I think you, subjectively you, on this one, right. it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a loss for me, and that makes me sad. Yeah, but I'm glad that the two of y'all can outrank me. Overrule me. Go try this. Uh, well, I, I and I would certainly Casey love to hear Brewing. from our listeners if anybody has had leaner. the uh, leaner or anything else from Casey. Have they gotten a funkier nose than they could handle, or um, are, are they more in league with Carlos and I, where they where they feel like uh, it it's brings a complexity that they kind of enjoy? Who knows? I mean, th- that's part of. What I love about the journey with the beer, it's part of what I love about the journey with the film, right? You you weren't as excited about Wild at Heart as we were, but that's okay. Indulgent, it, but... Uh, not every film. Hey, look, 200 episodes? Cheers, guys. It's, it's exciting. Cheers, absolutely. <laughs> Great Foley work. Thank you. Um, <laughs> now, where are we going? We've got a big conversation to have in After Hours because there's a big choice to be made next week. We can do Elvis... We can do the black phone. I think we need to like get in the cage and actually have a fist fight about all this. I'm really stressed out about that hours. conversation. But before we even get there, I can say that over the course of 200 episodes, I have decided that one of my favorite parts about this podcast is that the conversation doesn't end when we all turn the mics off <laughs> and leave this studio. It continues on social media uh, in various other places, uh, you can find us on all in all of your favorite places: Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and Movie TX, Beer and Movie is where you can unlock all of the hidden gems of Beer and a Movie. You can find our Discord there. Uh, there's a whole lot happening there. We're talking films, uh, we're talking beer, we're talking music. Uh, We're sharing memes. We're doing all sorts of that kind of stuff. We're also doing that in a more podcast-esque form on our Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week where we talk about all of the things I mentioned that we discuss on our Discord, but slightly in more depth uh, and in, in, in different ways as well about what's going on in our lives, all that kind of stuff. Uh, beer in a movie extended universe type shit. <laughs> and uh, uh, you, you can also find on the website uh, a link to our merch, tpublic.com slash user slash beer and movie, or uh, these curated kind of collections of episodes that Joe has put together that kind of revolve around uh, the director-centric episodes that we've done, the uh, All Horror October stuff that we've done, uh, things like the cage match, past cage match episodes as well. Um, that is all available at beerandmoviepodcast.com if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts please rate, review, and subscribe it really helps us to manipulate the algorithm to do what it do and put the podcast in front of more beer and movie loving fans we really appreciate it tell a friend tell your auntie tell your grandmother Beer and a Movie is the best film podcast on the internet tell Nicholas Cage uh, tell, please tell Nick Cage let's get him on the show Nick Cage we know you're listening episode 250 Nick, Nick Cage will be episode on episode oh, 250 guest Nicholas Cage. Oof. That it's, would be. We're manifesting, that's, I believe, is what the kids say. Okay. 
Until next time, don't turn away from love. Thank you.